Well, good morning. It is a delight for Sherry and I to be with you this morning. Um, we oversee 45 different churches, and uh, this was the church that we visited first about 16 months ago. We were here for Mike's installation ordination, and uh, we've been looking forward to a return visit, and it's great to be with you this morning. We've already enjoyed the fellowship of meeting some people at the early service. Would you turn in your Bibles this morning, please, to the book of Malachi, chapter 3. Malachi, the third chapter, and I just want to read a single verse to get us started today. Malachi, chapter 3, and verse 6. The prophet writes, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. What a year it has been. Have you paused recently to just reflect on all of the things in life that have changed for you in the past 12 months. It's been a wild ride. We have had words and phrases introduced into our vocabulary that a year ago we didn't know who had really used the word mitigation on an everyday basis. We didn't know what social distancing was all about. And I, for one, I confess I had never Zoomed before. And now I've got my own Zoom account and I'm Zooming all the time. And I had a two and a half hour Zoom call this week with a bunch of pastors. I was on a Zoom call with a group of pastors a few weeks ago and there were eight others besides myself. And I made the comment that we looked a lot like the Brady Bunch. And then I had to explain to all the pastors under the age of 30 who the Brady Bunch were. And it made me feel kind of old. But COVID has only been one part of the change that has come about in the past year. Our nation has experienced all sorts of change. We have experienced economic upheaval, the likes of which we've never seen before. We've seen government upheaval like we've never seen before. We've seen political polarization. We have seen grappling with systemic racism. We have seen all sorts of issues, and it's just been a constant, constant sense of change. And of course, that has flowed down not into only the public government, but into our public schools and remote learning. My, my sister is a professional school teacher, and she has just had a completely different year trying to teach fifth graders remotely. And of course, it's been changed for the church as well. In the midst of all of the change that has come about in the past year, in the midst of all of this powerful windstorm of unsettledness that would seek to uh, topple us over, I've discovered something about myself, and maybe this is also true of you. I don't like change. Can we please just go one week without me having to learn something new? Can we please just have a methodology in place for five minutes so I don't need to learn how to do something differently than what I did yesterday? 
Can we please just keep something the way it's always been so that I don't need to continue to adapt and change with it? That's all I ask for. There's something in my spirit that craves stability. There's something that just wants things to be the way they've always been and to not have to constantly playing the game of adapting and doing things differently. As we look at change in our lives, I'm reminded of the fact that years ago, I can still remember 1988, Sherry and I, we were still in college. We bought our first VCR. And it was wonderful because I could pop that tape in and I could record a baseball game that I wasn't able to watch because I was studying and I could watch it on my terms. And we had a collection. We put together quite a collection of VHS tapes. And and we had movies and series and programs and baseball and all sorts of sporting events. If I had to go to church on Sunday night, I could record the Super Bowl and watch it when I got home. The only problem was people would call and say, did you see the end of the Super Bowl? It was great. One year that actually happened. I joke about that. But one year someone called and said, what a great ending. Did you see that last play? And it's like, please, no, don't tell me. And just about the time that we got our collection of VHS tapes together. Yeah, the news came out. DVDs. Yeah, DVDs. Now, all of my collection of VH, all those things that I recorded, which were taking up boxes and boxes and boxes, that was irrelevant now. It's time to move to DVDs. And so reluctantly, we made the switch. And we went to DVDs. And for Christmas, instead of getting a, a VHS tape of your favorite movie, you got a DVD of your favorite movie. And you went, wow, now I can watch it anytime. This is really great. And we all went out and bought DVD players. Expensive DVD players, as I recall. And just about the time that we started to put together our DVD collection and we bought one of those towers so that you could organize them and have them ready, our kids came home from school and said, Mom, Dad, you'll never guess what. DVDs are out. It's about streaming now. I said, oh, I remember streaming. We used to play in the stream when I was a kid. I'm ready for that. What's involved? No, you don't understand. You don't have DVDs. Throw the DVDs out because now everything's going to be downloaded. I don't even want to know what's next. Everything seems to constantly be in this ebb and flow of change. And I know that I need to adapt. But there's something within me that just desires for it all to just level out. And for me not to have to deal with change for just a little while. Now, if you're taking notes today, the sermon's going to break down like this. We're going to talk about something negative. We're going to talk about something bad, but only for a few minutes. And then we're going to talk about something good. No, you know what? Let's start with something good. We're going to start with something good. Then we're going to delve into something that's kind of bad. But here's my promise to you. We're going to end with something good. You okay with that? (laughs) I have the microphone. You don't. I get to do whatever I want. Yeah, we're going to start with some good news, and then we'll deal with the bad, and then we'll end with the good. That's the way we're going to go. So if you're following, you know, you can just do that. First of all, let's deal with something good. That sense that we have within of longing for something permanent, something consistent, 
That's actually hardwired into us by our creator. God did that to us. So that's not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. In the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon writes, God has put eternity in our hearts. In other words, he created us for a a, a capacity that is greater than this world can offer. You have within you a capacity for appreciation of beauty that is far beyond anything that this world will ever be able to fulfill because you were ultimately not made for this world. You were made for another world. You were made for the glory of heaven. And as beautiful as Niagara Falls is, as beautiful as the Grand Canyon is, you were given by God a capacity to appreciate beauty greater than those things. God did that. So when it comes to my attitude about change, I'll tell you what, God did this to me. God put in me a desire for eternity where all things will remain the same. Now you say, why are they going to remain the same? Because of this. The Bible says that in eternity, everything will constantly be new. Now, that's never been our experience on earth. We have never had the experience of everything constantly being new. As a matter of fact, everything is constantly in a state of deterioration. Anything that you bought yesterday is worth less today than it was yesterday. Because everything deteriorates. Everything begins to fall apart. It begins to rust. And it begins to change colors. Like brown to gray. It happens. But in eternity, all things, God says, will remain new. That foretaste of glory divine is a preview of coming attractions when we reach that state of heaven where nothing will ever need to be replaced or repaired. Nothing will ever need to be fixed or the dreaded word that I hate upgraded. There will be no computer geeks in heaven telling you that it's time to upgrade. Some of my worst computer experiences in life have been when my program, which was only 28 years old, was operating just fine. And someone well-intentioned said, it's time for an upgrade. And all of a sudden I can't find anything anymore because it's been upgraded. No more upgrades. I think there will be computer geeks in heaven, but there will be no upgrades in heaven. So the good news is that whatever it is that creates this desire for eternity is God given. But now here's the bad news. We have often sought to fulfill the desire for that eternity in the wrong places. We have a tendency to go fishing in the wrong pool when it comes to fulfilling that inward desire for an eternal state of permanence. Ask any parent who has left a child behind at the funeral home. And they will tell you, I didn't think this would ever happen. It's not supposed to happen this way. Children are supposed to bury their parents. Parents should never have to go through the pain of burying a child. What happened was there, there was an illusion of permanence. This is the way life works. 
This is the way it's supposed to progress. And when it doesn't, we're devastated because we've been operating under a mindset that says the way things are is the way that they will always be. And when someone is struck down in in their 20s or 30s, we're particularly devastated by that because we say, I didn't think it would be like this. This isn't what I ever expected my life to look like. You see, we had an illusion of permanence. That that was wired into us by God, but it was never meant to be played out on our terms. We live with that illusion. And when that is threatened, when permanence is threatened, we struggle. We declare things after September 11th. We declare we will never forget. But we know that we do forget who won the World Series in 1963. Who knows? We forget. In 1963, everybody probably knew. But we forget. The things that we tell ourselves we will never, ever forget, we forget. Because that sense of permanence that we have, we have bound ourselves to doesn't seem to match up with the existence that we live. We make vows promising to love, honor, and cherish, even though we're aware that for many relationships, those vows will be broken. So what do we do? Well, we have a tendency to go to three different areas looking for permanence. Three areas, by the way, that can't supply what we're looking for. The first is this. We often go looking for people to fulfill that innate desire for permanence. I am not in the local church pastor role, but when I was a pastor for more than 30 years, I did a lot of premarital counseling. And when you're getting ready for a wedding and you're counseling a couple, the one thing that I would always ask is, why do you want to get married? And the, what I never wanted to hear. And unfortunately what I heard all too much of was one or the other would say, because she completes me. Or he'll say, she makes me happy. Really? Wonder how long that's going to last. Because if you're going to put that crushing weight on another person to be responsible for making you happy, you're doomed before you ever get to throwing rice. God never intended for people to fulfill this desire for eternity that he has placed in us. And when we do, we not only disappoint ourselves, but we crush other people. 2020 was a rough year for some of my Christian heroes in ministry. I was reading an article a few weeks ago and and they just sort of put together the roster of all of the well-known Christian leaders who have fallen into sin. And there's a part of me that goes, no, Lord, how can this be? I was shaped by that individual's ministry. I read their books. I listened to their sermons. I met them personally. How can it be? I had looked to other people to do something that they were never designed by God to do. And if you put confidence in people, even good people, because they're human beings, eventually they're going to let you down. That doesn't mean that we should never trust anyone. 
but it means that when we experience change and we're looking for people to give us that sense of permanence, I know that he's always going to be there for me. Now they probably aren't because they may just do something crazy like up and die. And then they won't be there for you. And if that's really what you've been looking for, what will you do? At very best, you'll live a life of disappointment. As a pastor, I think I struggled more with this one facet of church existence than anything else. When people would leave the church, sometimes it was a job that caused them to have to relocate. Sometimes it was a broken relationship with somebody else in the church. Sometimes it was a direction that we as a congregation were going. But I had this mindset that when someone came to visit, went to the membership class, joined the church, got active in ministry, started to give on a regular basis, that it was always going to be like that. They were always going to be there. And and when they would announce that we're out of here, we're leaving, or we're going to be moving, or we don't like this church anymore, it was devastating. I didn't like it. It was change. Because I had started to look for people to supply for me what only God is designed to do. There's a second place that we go looking for this permanence. And that is methodology. I don't know whether your church is different than many other churches, but this seems to be something that is settled over the church more than any other institution. I know that government goes through it and I know that educational systems go through it, but is it not true that in the church, we often get made fun of for saying, but we've always done it this way before. It's sort of a running joke about how set we are in our systems. I think there's a reason for that. I think the reason is that we all desire this eternal sense of permanence. And we find the essence of that in some of our traditions. We've always done it this way. Why? Because when we do this consistently year in and year out on this date or this way or with this methodology, that tradition makes us feel kind of comfortable. The one thing I can count on is that we're always going to be able to be together on Christmas Eve. Except when we're not, we're always going to be able to have a big crowd on Easter. Except that didn't happen last year. We're always, we can always count on that. Well, there are going to be things that are going to come up. that are going to cause our traditions to sort of quake. And if that's what we're looking to, to fulfill this need for permanence, we're going to be disappointed. In my very first church was a church of about 35 people, but on Christmas Eve, the place would be packed. The one year we had 140 in a church that really could only seat comfortably about a hundred, but people were standing around the walls and the extra chairs in the aisles and in the back, because on Christmas Eve, we had our children's program and everybody in the neighborhood, people that wouldn't set foot in the church any other day of the year would come on Christmas Eve to see the children and they would read their poems and sing their little songs. And we would do a little pageant and, and people would just flock to see it. It was a tradition. And on my very first Christmas Eve, I said to the person in charge of the program, what do you want me to do? And she said, you know, all we need you to do, pastor, is just 
pray for the offering. Get up halfway through the service, pray for the offering, invite the ushers to take the offering, and then you can sit down. That's all we need this year. I said, okay, you got it. Halfway through the program, I stood up. I said, ushers, if you would please come. And while the ushers are coming, can I just tell you, these programs cost money. You know, we had to go out and buy some costumes and we had to invest in some burlap and we needed a new spotlight from the hardware store. And man, that was six bucks. And so I'm going to, without any embarrassment tonight, I'm going to ask you, would you give generously tonight? Give from the heart. Let's make this a big offering. Ushers came, took the offering. Second half of the program proceeded without any hitches. Service is over. People are filing out. Sherry and I are standing in the center aisle, greeting people and up walks our church treasurer with one of those zip bags, you know, that treasurers carry and says here, and she hands me this bag and I can tell that it's got quite a bit of money in it from the weight of it. And I said, what's this? She said, it's our tradition on Christmas Eve. The offering goes to the pastor. (sighs) Okay. So all traditions aren't bad. (laughs) They never asked me to pray for the offering on Christmas Eve ever again. We get locked in, don't we? This is the way we do our music. This is the way we have our services. This is the time that we have our service. This is the style that we have. This is the building that we have. We did a renovation project after a fire in my first church. And we got into a pretty heated discussion about whether we were going to have pews, which is what we had had, or whether we were going to go to chairs. And we had people that were getting pretty contentious about it. And in the midst of all that, we went on a missions trip to Ecuador. And we took a two-hour ride up into the hill country, into the Indian country in Otavalo. And we visited a church there. And we walked into this church building, which was the nicest building in the entire community. The homes that we were in had dirt floors. The church building we walked into had ceramic tile and it was very nicely constructed, but there was only one thing missing. There were no pews and there were no chairs. So naturally when it came time for us to ask questions, I said, I'm just curious. I don't notice any seating at all here. What, what do you do? And the pastor looked at me with surprise and said, we sit on the floor. I didn't take that idea back home because I didn't think that that would go over well. We have roles that we have. We're familiar and we get locked in and we say, this is the way it must be. I confess early in ministry, I used to think that people who had non-traditionalist ideas were tools of the devil. You want to do what? You want to try something new? You want, that's never been done before. I like trying new things, but only if they've been done before. Then I discovered that what they were really doing was just breaking away from saying that permanence is found in tradition and in methodology. That maybe it's okay To do something in a different way, maybe Jesus isn't offended by that. Maybe it actually is driving us closer to the truth. Because when our, when our traditions are no longer able to be kept, when the pressure to always do it the way it's been done before grows so enormous that we just don't even enjoy it anymore, We discovered that it was never intended for those things to meet the need 
for eternity that God placed in our hearts. The third area that we sometimes go swimming in that we shouldn't is when we look to things for permanence. Objects, institutions, cars, houses, government. Lately, we've been observing that government can be something that isn't always stable. Guess what? God never intended for us to look to government for stability. That was never his design. He never promised us that no matter what happens, you'll always have as your foundation Congress. Never promised that. Never promised. The reason is, if that's where we're looking, we're going to always be unsettled. If that's what I'm trusting in to give me that sense of stability, every couple years, every election, every time that happens, I'm going to be unsettled and I'll be consistently frustrated. In his book, Church Unique, Will Mancini writes of a church that he was doing consultation work with. It was a church in Virginia And he had a meeting with their deacons to discuss this issue that had come up. It was a church that for a long time had had two services, an early service and a later service in the morning. The early service had always been the more contemporary service. The later service had always been traditional. But the community that the church was in was changing. Thousands and thousands of new families were moving into this community and building new houses. And they did some study and they realized that for many of those young families, the more contemporary service was going to be more attractive than the traditional service. And so some of the people in leadership had suggested that perhaps they should switch services, that they could take the traditional service and move it to 830 and have the contemporary service move to 11 because that's the time when people with young children were more likely to attend church. As the author was negotiating and talking to the leadership team, he said there was one deacon. His name was Bob. There was one deacon who was just glaring at him the entire meeting. And finally, the author said, Bob, I sense that we're not on the same page here. Could you please tell me what's what's on your heart? And Bob said, I just want you to know that I'm against this. I've always gone to a traditional service at 11 o'clock from the time that I've been a child in this church, 70 years. I've been attending this church. I've always come at 11 o'clock to a traditional service. The author says he leaned over the table and looked at Bob eye to eye and said, Bob, are you telling me that you would rather maintain your tradition? even at the risk of there being unsaved families with children that might never hear the gospel. And Bob folded his arms and said, yes. And the author says the rest of the board followed Bob's lead. And ultimately they voted not to take advantage of the opportunity, the tradition and its permanence had become an idol. And you see, when we look to an object, any object 
and ask it to fulfill the permanence that it was never intended to, what we have done, maybe inadvertently, is we have knocked Christ off of the throne and we've taken that institution or that object or that person and we have placed it on the throne and now we are worshiping it as opposed to Jesus. Anytime we hear ourselves say, I must have this. It must be this way. We have substituted for our savior, our very own idol. That's the bad news. People, methodologies, objects. I promised you I'd finish with some good news. Here we go. The good news is that Malachi 3.6 says that eternity is only found in the person of Christ. I, the Lord, do not change. The author of Hebrews put it this way. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. The character, the power, the plan, the promises, the essence of God does not change. His word does not change. He is the stability that we long for. He is the permanence that my heart craves. But when I say I will only be at peace when all my ducks are in a row, my word, I don't even know where all my ducks are, let alone getting them in a row. That is never going to happen. Oh, when I get financial security and when my health is right and when I have the right job and when my family's at the right place, then I'm really going to be able to have peace. Folks, it was never intended that any of those things provide for you what Jesus provides for you. Your security, your eternity was designed to be in him and him alone. But... Because he doesn't change doesn't mean that his methodology never changes. Because Jesus never changes doesn't mean that he doesn't change the way he does things. There was a time in history when God was worshipped in a tent. And then a temple. And then Jesus arrived and said, you know, this is the home of God. This is where God wants to dwell. At one point, we worshiped God by bringing an animal sacrifice every time we came to worship. Aren't you glad that you didn't need to bring a goat with you when you came to church? There was a time. There was a time when God spoke to his people through prophets. And then... Jesus said, I will send the comforter to you and he will live in you and he will speak truth to you and guide you. There was a time in the Old Testament when God communicated to people through a stubborn mule. All right, I'm living proof. He still does that sometimes, but that's beside the point. The key idea is that by exchanging and embracing ideas and new methods, we are not betraying the eternal God. We are not missing the point. We're actually finding it. Jesus Christ, yesterday, today, forever, not my methodology, 
yesterday, today, forever. Not my home yesterday, today, forever. Jesus. So when God says, I am doing a new thing, he's talking about methodology. He's not saying that he has changed. He's saying, I don't change, but my methods do. His perfect character will never change. Yesterday, today, forever, Jesus is the same. All may change, but Jesus never glory to his name. A year ago, a horrible virus came to America and it changed the face of our entire society. And so many things have changed in the past year. It is difficult to keep up with them. As I work with pastors, what I have heard them say over and over again is how fatigued and tired they are. And I press them on why. And they say, because the decision-making process has been constant. We are constantly needing to decide on things. And everything keeps changing. We have a plan and then something gets announced and it has to be changed and we have to go with plan B. We're down to plan R because things keep changing. It's exhausting. And yet in the midst of it, we have seen people continue to keep giving and keep loving and keep worshiping and keep growing. When I hear about what you are doing for the workers in the, the medical world, in your community, my heart is thrilled. What a powerful message to send of God's love in the midst of all this change. You're saying you can count on God and his people are going to love you and appreciate you. In the end, we don't need to seek permanence anywhere else other than Jesus. And if you find that in him, everything else can change. Everything else can change because he never will. Even today, you might have come here struggling with all the swirling change that is around you. Maybe you have anxiety about the political scene or the economic scene. Maybe it's come down to your family. Maybe the medical world and the changes that are being asked are very troubling to you. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's the educational world that your children are inhabiting. There is so much change. Don't look to that to do for you what it was never designed to do. Only, only Jesus. In the words of Charles Wesley, and all things as they change proclaim the Lord eternally the same. Let's pray. Jesus, in the midst of the world that we inhabit today, how many times have we heard ourselves say, I never thought I'd live to see this. I never thought this would happen. We cloaked ourselves in that illusion of permanence. Lord, we're discovering that there are cracks in that illusion. The things that we have held on to and valued and said, this will always be there. Some of them have crumbled. Some of them are crumbling. What an opportunity for us to reestablish our footing on the foundation of you. 
So as we worship in these next few moments, it is my prayer that your spirit would speak words of encouragement and affirmation to us. We will be okay. Not because we all come together. That's an illusion. Not because of medical breakthroughs. That's an illusion. If we're going to be okay, it will be because of the mercy and faithfulness of an unchanging God. And we proclaim together, great is your faithfulness. Thank you for this word. Amen.